Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Byteside. I'm Seamus Byrne and we talk about all things tech and media and digital culture. And it is really great to get to have a couple of real production experts in the sound space with us this week to talk about the present and the future of recording in interesting ways. So joining me is the team from Trackdown Studios. If you could both introduce yourselves a little bit and explain each of your roles there at Trackdown. Hi, I'm Elaine Beckett. I'm the general manager at Trackdown Studios. So I look after the team management and the studio management, everything from bookings through to equipment coming in and and the clients. And I'm Craig. I'm the technical officer. So I look after all the gear, all the equipment in the room, actually in the whole building. I'm also the head scoring engineer here and a audio post guy as well. So sound, sound designs, mixing, all that sort of stuff. Awesome. Craig, I think, you know, when you talk about end-to-end, I mean, literally, uh, you're talking everything from the microphones right through to the computer hardware, right? Yeah, from the microphones right down to the power that we run in the building <laughs> and where we run it. <laughs> That's brilliant. So can you, you know, give us a little bit of history of Trackdown and, you know, some of the big movies or shows or games that you've, you've worked on that people would know about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Trackdown's actually been around a very long time. It was started... Uh, more than 30 years ago by a couple of guys in high school who started it as a rehearsal studio and true testament to them and surviving the music industry in not just Australia but the world, they moved through from rehearsal studio to two-track recording to multi-track recording and then I suppose to the, you know, the mother of all studios which is the orchestral scoring stage, so quite a journey for them. And so in the early days it was, you know, the rehearsal space for bands like In Excess and Midnight Oil, um, the early recording days, things like Ice House. Uh, and moving through, we've done the scores for films like Happy Feet, Mad Max Fury Road, and to continue the George Miller trend, most recently 3,000 Years of Longing, which have just hit the cinemas recently. No, that's amazing. And you know, are there some milestone moments for you when you consider those kind of growth moments for track down? Yeah, you know, were there any particular moments that stand out as being, oh yeah, we're we're entering a new phase here? I, I think abs- you know, every studio for the owners of Trackdown have been a milestone, obviously moving through the rehearsal space. And the scoring stage is particularly special because uh, obviously Australia didn't have a history of scoring stages at all. Trackdown is the only purpose-built scoring stage in the country. So that is a very special moment. But for the scoring stage in particular, I think Happy Feet as an orchestral film score was really that moment that said, yes, Australia can do a big blockbuster film at that scale. Uh, Until that point, we were really servicing the local industry. And that was one of those moments where the sort of Hollywood studios went, oh, yes, the players, like the musicians can do this. The studio can do this. And that really set us on the pathway to, to more international productions. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, yeah, we'll get into some of the really digital stuff shortly, but it, it really was quite amazing getting to visit there at Trackdown Studios recently. And and when you talk about the physicality of that orchestra room, it sounds like that feeds into the quality of the results that you're able to achieve. So can you explain for people seeing this what some of those unique features are of how the room has actually been constructed that gives it a special sound? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were fortunate enough to get, I suppose, the bare bones of a really good space. Trackdown was built at the Entertainment Quarter, which was previously Fox Studios. And the space was originally an auditorium for a green screen experience. You know, you would jump up on stage with The Simpsons and perform. And the story goes that because it was The Simpsons, the auditorium was given this wacky shape. I'm sure the people designing it had some idea about the acoustic properties of a wacky shape and having that many <laughs> children running wild. Um, probably best to create an acoustic space that uh, was best for that. So what we did have was a diamond in the rough. We It had um, rake seating, these non-parallel walls and a really high ceiling. Of course, the room did take some work, but what we were able to do was keep essentially the uh, rake seating space, but we we floored straight over it. And that gives us a brilliant resonance with our strings. We actually let cellos and double basses spike into the floor, destroys the floor, but it creates an amazing sound. (laughs) We call our floor the working floor because it does have pox and scratches from every job it's ever done, but that's part of the, the history of it. And then our acoustician did some amazing things, like we utilised the air conditioning return air, which is at the front of the room, to help form the bass trap for the room. And we do have an infinite baffle in the room. So basically the room operates like a concert hall with a full audience, which it means it's a, a concert hall at its optimum. I don't know if you've ever experienced a concert hall with a half audience versus a full audience, and you do have a different acoustic experience. We're very fortunate. We've always got everybody in the room watching the orchestra at all times. <laughs> so that's great. And then we've got a very well-calculated diffusion in the room. And then there are some panels up in the ceiling, which were tweaked over the sort of first 12 months of the life of the studio to ensure that we were getting the best audio response in the the room. So it's a lot of science and a lot of voodoo to create these spaces, that's (laughs) for sure. My weird connection to that space is that an old friend of mine, when it shut down as the Simpsons experience and they were selling off all the spare assets from the back lot, uh, yeah, a mate of mine bought the the motion capture suit that used to be used on that stage because he was like, oh, like it's, you know, at the time it was probably $1,000 still, but he's like, this is a bargain compared to what it, you know, what it should be costing. <laughs> I'd love to know what he was doing with it now. <laughs> Um, now, look, yeah, clearly I think you have to capture great sound in microphones before you start doing anything with the sound in production. So I'd love, yeah, Craig, your thoughts on what does a good microphone mean to you and is there an art to how you use those microphones to capture great sound? For me, a good microphone is a microphone that I can hear everything I need to hear and I don't have to add too many frequencies to it. So if I, if I have something with a very clear bottom end, very clear top end and no mud in the middle, I'm happy. Uh, <laughs> for what we do, because we capture everything as clean as we can possibly capture it, it makes my job easier if I know that I've got the right microphone on the stand to make sure that I, I capture everything. And it doesn't matter how much that microphone costs, no. I must say. No, I have some some very cheap microphones and I have some very expensive microphones out there. And I do kind of run them on and off every now and then and I put stuff up and there might be something that works really well on one instrument, doesn't work very well on another. It's just a matter of kind of getting used to, for me, the room, 
and the microphones in the room and the position in the room. It kind of reminds me, you know, for people, I guess, you know, like, I obviously record some podcasts of things these days, but I find that early on when I was, I'd buy like what people said, this is the best thing because it's just, it's great for exactly this kind of thing. But then I'd find that like a, a really clever, uh, like dynamic microphone was like, it was picking up way too much sound around me and I couldn't find how to control that because yeah, I wasn't in an acoustically good space. And so I found buying actually, you know, more like a vocal mic was better than buying, you know, a different kind of, and so it was funny, I almost had to slowly experiment to work out you can't just read a review on its own and think, oh, that's that's going to be perfect for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, look, there's been some times we've used shotgun microphones on things in the room. I actually, the other day, was using some Tom microphones on some trumpets, which works really well. Uh, <laughs> we especially really... when you've got some loud trumpets in our room, it's, uh, it gets even louder. <laughs> so, yes, we subscribe to use your ears. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Look, that's a great yeah. point. And look, here's another kind of tip because I know I've I was always told, you know, a palm span away from the mic is the correct mic distance, but now that I kind of, you know, use them more often, I find that in certain cases, it's like, well, you, you just need to kind of test it and listen to it or like get a little closer to it sometimes if you want to warm us. You like there's all those kinds of things that are quite different just do what feels right. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely how I approach a lot of what the, what we do is actually testing it. And if it feels right to me and the clients are happy, then- There it is. It works. <laughs> <laughs> Just try and keep it as simple as we can keep it, really. Yeah. We do have a lot of work to do to try and get the orchestra going within the first kind of 15 minutes of the session. So if I know that the microphones are good and what I've got out there I can rely on, then it makes my job a lot easier. And then I can focus on actually what we're capturing. So, yeah, how much of sound production process today is analog versus digital? And you really can feel free to nerd out on some format and track count type stuff because I'm sure people watching this will thoroughly enjoy that. (laughs) For us, the most analog component is our preamps and our monitoring. Oh, and our headphones as well. So... Our preamps, everything runs direct into the preamp and then out of the preamp into our Euphonics console that we're running. And that gets patched in digitally. Once it goes into Pro Tools, it's all digital. And once it goes into the Euphonics, it's all digital. So we're currently running, I think from memory, about a 334 channel setup on the Euphonics at the moment, which gives us quite a bit of flexibility to print stems and things as we go and monitor everything that we need during COVID. It was a making sure that we had Zoom returns and all sorts of other things that we needed to make sure that we could hear and send and things. So our console takes care of all of our headphone system, which goes out to some amps that we've got in the racks. And then everything gets fed from there into the rooms that we need. But yeah, mostly all our Pro Tools systems talk digitally to our console they all run via MADI and that seems to be the best way for us to be able to get the large number of inputs and outputs that we need. I think from memory, we've got 192 inputs on our main record system. So that's a fairly big, it's a HDX3 system on one of the newer Mac Pros. Yeah, awesome. And so then, you know, on top of that, how much 
backup and redundancy and security is involved because, yeah, I, and I guess, yeah, on the redundancy side, obviously you want to capture it and know you're not going to lose it. And then I'm sure there's a lot of secrecy attached to some of the projects you work on. While we're tracking, every time we get a, the orchestra goes on a break or we go for lunch or dinner or we will back up and make sure that there is a, a copy, at least two copies while we're tracking. So we've got a copy on our record rig and then there's a copy on a backup. And then at the end of the job, we'll depends on the client and how, how we want to deal with it. But we, we do have a rule of definitely at least three copies. Yeah, a digital file doesn't exist <laughs> in the world unless there are three versions of yeah. that. Yeah, that is a tip for life. That, it is, oh, definitely. Absolutely. As cheap as hard drives are, they still fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's always good to have extras. Yeah. I'd love your thoughts on all things latency these days because again I know you've you know you said you've you've worked remotely with people via Zoom. I always kind of think back to the greatest lesson we've had about latency online is when people tried to sing happy birthday to somebody over Zoom yeah. and suddenly they realize it does not work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how have you managed remote links and and have you found any ways to kind of synchronize in smart ways remotely if that's ever required? There is a couple of workarounds, let's call them, <laughs> to try and get um, the latency down as low as we can possibly get it. There's a couple of bits of software that we've started using. We were using Source Connect and we still do use Source Connect quite a lot. And then we've started using some extra, you know, Zoom in conjunction with audio movers and all those sorts of things. So it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis and also knowing where the clients are and what time of day it is there. Also depends on the latency. The, the <laughs> um, recommended <laughs> pathway. Yeah. It kind of varies from job to job, but mostly we've kind of worked out a way around some of the latency. But otherwise it's just, you know, yeah. it's become part of people's understanding of, of the workflow, particularly during COVID. I think we all just accepted the digital communication was part of our life. What we have found is even when we're using high-end audio um, communication software, which gives the recipient a very good quality audio feed, which once you start going high quality, latency does start coming into it. Yeah. Having something like Zoom running simultaneously, which gives them a visual cue, We've actually, you know, stopped recording in Australia, even though they're still listening to the tail end of their audio feed, they can keep the session moving and start giving notes. So everyone to save time during session sort of use those visual cues to keep things rolling. So, um, you know, I don't think anyone feels the latency in Zoom. It's so instant. Yeah. So that that's how I suppose one of the big things that, you know, helped us in audio land was a visual cue. Oh, look, that's, yeah, it's a really good point. At a broad level, I'd love your thoughts on how sound and music production has been changed over the past few years and, and what parts of the changes you think will actually stick around into the future. I think a lot of the remote stuff will continue even more than it has pre-COVID. I think we'll see more people doing more remote collaboration and more remote recording. I think a lot of the equipment has gotten better because of everyone being it like remotely you've got someone that has to have good speakers and you have to have someone that has a decent microphone to be able to talk to someone and decent cameras and things i know that you know we've added a couple of cameras into our our setup as a, a permanent thing now we've got one in the scoring stage that just kind of sits and we can get a kind of bird's eye view of the orchestra 
and then we've got one in the control room so everyone can see what we're doing and how frantic we're running around for most of it. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's pretty calm. Um, but yeah, I think we'll see a, an increase in the the quality of equipment at, I guess, more of a consumer level, make it easier for people to collaborate remotely. Yeah. At a broader work level, it's definitely seemed like that case of, you know, the the sense of necessity to travel and be at something in person has been reduced. So is that sort of that similar idea for, for, for your work as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the software that we're using as remote software is actually is continually getting better and actually got better sort of as COVID kicked off. And um, even though it was being kind of hammered a bit <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right in the beginning everyone's so panicking going oh no <laughs> we still need to record everything but yeah i think the software's gotten a lot better the hardware's definitely i also recall uh you know you mentioned that because of i guess how well australia was doing during part of covid there that you know that you were one of the the only stages out in the world that was able to to continue working was that right Yeah, absolutely. We did have a moment. I think we were one of three studios worldwide that were actually able to put a group of people in a room, which is, you know, really interesting. I, in one instance, got a call on Friday and had to have a full string section in the studio on Monday to ensure that a a television show actually could make their delivery. We love a challenge like that and we were able to make it happen, which was good. But yeah, so what that did for us was open up Trackdown as a potential, you know, space for people who may not have considered us because they, you know, already had a solution on home soil. They had to look outside, you know, borders to get their job done. And that has meant that we've um, gained some clients that have just continued coming. That old Australian thing that, you know, once you've worked with us, you can't help but keep coming back. Yeah. Um, it has <laughs> rung true for us, which is really nice. So we've, we've had some, you know, great new clients during COVID who have continued working with us beyond COVID, though we're still sort of in COVID. So, uh, yeah, it's just really good. Yeah. I'd love to do a bit of a comparison between, you know, movies, TV, video games. Have you found, you know, the differences in how you produce sound for different formats? And I often wonder if, you know, that whole, I guess, interactivity and player agency side of games ever gets reflected in the way you create music for them. It can sometimes in the games. It all comes down to how we position everything in the, in the room. So we, how we set the orchestra up and how we actually deal with the orchestra, whether we split it up into sections and have our strings and then do our woodwinds and then do our brass as a separate component percussion and record them separately. And then we can have them positioned in the room, kind of in the panning space to know where they sit. The gaming stuff is moving more towards the film stuff, which is what we used to do as well. So all, all the film stuff is more broken up now into sections. And so a lot of that gives you a lot more control as a editor and a mixer so that later down the track when you've got recuts of films or if you need to take a cutscene out of a game or something or you need to move something timing-wise, you've got the ability to cut everything individual individually, which makes everything kind of come together a lot better. So I think we're seeing more things being broken up 
than they used to be. Although we did do a couple of all-in things recently, which was a lot of fun and I haven't done that in a while. And uh, and I think it's different with the different types of computer games as yeah. well, where we've seen music was such a driving force in games, not that it isn't with film, but films are, you know, you've got to hear the, all the dialogue, um, you've got the sound effects as well, and music quite often is a supporting role. In games, sometimes it really leads the drama, However, now we're seeing more and more games that have taken on those very narrative storylines. So there are moments in the games that they are too clearing for dialogue and things yeah. like that in film. So you've got this sort of, you know, interesting crossover where the film discipline and the, the game discipline sort of find their, their spaces. In the game stuff, I think now there's a bit more of the we'll record it in a, you know, couple of bars and loop it. There's more, a little more creativity going in and things are becoming longer suites of music to cover longer portions of game play than what we were seeing before because yeah. you can fit more onto the, the content now in, into the discs and the downloads and things. So. And gameplay is, you know. A lot I, longer. I, it's a lot longer. <laughs> you know, you can, you can spend a day playing a computer yeah. game, you know, with a film you're out in the, you know, two or three hours. Yeah. To keep the audience there, the the content is changing. Yeah. Now, look, I am a bit of a World of Warcraft nerd. So when you you know, mentioned you did a bit of Shadowlands work, yeah, you know, was that? I mean, was that one of those kinds of jobs that came through because of weird COVID things, or was it? You know, you know, how did that fall into your lap? Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's where that that opportunity came from. So I yeah. know Craig was very happy to work on Shadowlands as a <laughs> a gamer himself. So. Yeah, <laughs> as a relatively long time fan of Warcraft, <laughs> and I think from maybe about the third or fourth year in. I don't know, Elaine's brother is a massive Warcraft guy, so he, he loves <laughs> the fact that See, we See, I got we brownie points with my brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all around. <laughs> um, the only time I'm cool. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, that was a, a definitely a, a fun project and a, and a continually fun project to work on. It's definitely high up on my list. And you mentioned earlier like printing stems. You know, can you explain that for somebody who is like printing a what? <laughs> yeah. So when we're recording, say if we're recording in sections, so we record our strings and we break down parts of the string line, we'll have our first pass, which we'll record down a desk reference mix as we're going. So in those situations, we can then play that back while we do the next part. And so the idea is that I've then got those stems and then we can send those off. They can be referenced for the edit and kind of, you know, get all the timing right and everything. Uh, not that there's much of that that needs doing. So that single stem is, yeah. you know, a, a mix down of the 20 odd microphones yeah. that are up. So that'll be in the room, room microphones and spot microphones and things if we need them. And so there'll be in each one of those passes or desk reference mixes, there'll be those microphones and then when we go to the next lot there'll be those microphones again but just played with a different part and so when you get to your wind you can then play back all your string parts so that the wind has something to tune against with the strings and then you just keep going and it just keeps it's going. quite it's quite an administrative job for the pro tools operator to manage the amount of material hitting their desk but how quickly they have to reuse yeah. that material yeah, and so make it available. Yeah, being, be, being a, a fairly fast Pro Tools operator and compiling stuff as as we're going, as you know, the composer says, oh, I like that from these bars, paste that in, and we do quick edits and print that gets all printed down in each part we do. So it 
it then gets referenced later. It sounds a lot like, you know, on when you're watching sport and you're like, man, that person who like got the slow motion replay ready within seconds of the thing even happening. It's that kind of skill set. Yes. That's absolutely <laughs> it. And keep cool under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Like of 50, 60 people sitting out I in the room waiting say, for I was going to say, and there's, there's no slow-mo, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> That'd yes. be nice sometimes. Yeah. And you're right. Instead of everybody at home, there's like a room full of people just kind of looking at the window waiting. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, pre, pre-COVID, a lot of people sitting behind you <laughs> waiting and, for and you And now to a lot of people sitting on Zoom waiting. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Um, so, look, do you have favourite styles or genres to work in or are there you know, particular aspects of music or sound design or post-production uh, that you enjoy the most? I do like recording scores and mixing. It's a l- huge amount of fun to see how it all comes together. And I'm going to speak for Craig. Whenever there is a science fiction job, like if, yes. if, if you say we're doing Star Wars, which we have been fortunate enough to do Star Wars visions and um, we've done some Clone Wars and things like yeah. that, that I think the the inner child um, oh yeah sings uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of that, and there is something special about you know doing a score with a, a known melody from childhood or, so, yes. or something like that. Yeah. It does connect strongly. I I just love anything really. But you know what? I like a challenge. Any any job that calls me on a Friday and asks me to get an orchestra in by Monday is my yeah. special kind of joy because I like to torture <laughs> myself. But I do like those challenges. I've been here at Trackdown for nearly 18 years doing this stuff. So still getting those curveballs even to this day and never being, you know, being able to, you know, quite rest on, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can do it, but the challenges are fun. Well, look, it's a great point, isn't it? That they're the kinds of moments that really do, you know, build your reputation, you know, as someone who can solve a problem for somebody when they need it. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So, you know, what, do you feel like the future looks like for Trackdown Studios? You know, I, I'm imagining there's there's cool projects you can't even tell me about right now, but, you know, how many things at, at once are you juggling? You know, through through the doors here at Trackdown this week, I think I've got five different projects happening. Some, some are sort of wrapping up, some will start, and this is in post-production versus, um, you know, the music space. And it's, you know, always really interesting um, where we sit in I suppose in Australia or in the global marketplace that we get to work with you know like on the weekend we had the Australian Youth Orchestra in and then a couple of days before that we had a public school in so we had the youngest of young kids you know who are just learning their instruments and then you see them get to the you know youth orchestra and it was actually the conductor with the public school who was saying and he's one of our scoring orchestra players so he's in doing the big film scores and he said he's now got kids that he taught at the public school so in primary school sitting beside him doing the film scores so it's really nice that we are part of the journey from you know first time walking into track down like absolute stars in their eyes but dazzled by the space all the way through to professional musicians delivering those film scores that will be with us for the rest of time, I suppose. So mm. that that's sort of, I suppose, why it's a special place. It's for everybody yeah. to make music and do sound. It's great. That's brilliant. And, you know, how do you see the tech of sound changing in the years ahead? You know, mics kind of do seem like they last an awfully long time when, when they're looked after, you know, but are there parts of the process that are evolving quickly? 
I think the for us the the thing is converters. They're getting better and better every release of equipment. Suppose in post lands, the the moving into Atmos, that's always an interesting space. Obviously, the world went from stereo to 5.1. Atmos is available for people in their homes. People are adopting it. People, I've heard some are really excited about it. Some are, I don't even understand this. I think what will drive the industry is that the broadcasters, streamers, etc., they are requiring the industry to deliver at top spec and whilst that delivery is available we'll see if the consumers adopt it and start taking those deliveries. Sound is one of those really interesting things. We love it at its highest quality but there are moments in time that we're happy to uh, I suppose downgrade. We've had mp3s in our <laughs> lives and anyone who listens to an mp3 is their, their only protocol. I suggest you go and um, listen to the music as it was intended that you know the compression doesn't do it justice, but we will see what the consumer market does because really that is what ultimately drives what our clients, the broadcasters and the distributors want from us. At the moment, everyone seems quite committed to an Atmos delivery. So whilst that's the, the requirement, that's what we'll do and we'll see where it goes from there. What does it mean? Because you know, I believe in the Atmos co- context, it's like object-oriented audio in some way, like how does that change the way you you mix or work with sound? It gives you a little more, I guess, creativity in in some sense to you've got a lot more space to work with. So you've got a lot more speakers to fill <laughs> in some sense so that you've got, say, in a sound design thing, you've got a helicopter moving across screen. You can then have it go across the top speakers and you can have it move around the back and come forward and and really kind of match what's happening on screen. And you've got things flying over you or things like that. Atmos is great for all of that stuff. So you, you feel like you're actually in the space with the image. And I guess in a music sense, it's, it's quite cool because then you can actually move some things around that you wouldn't normally be able to do. You know, when you've just got everything in stereo or 5.1, you've got your limited, you know, you've got your front, your back, your sides, and that's it. Or in the stereo, you've got your fronts and that's it. So it's giving everyone, I think, an opportunity to be a little more creative. Cool. Oh, that's great. Now, here's the really big future kind of concept question. Speaking of creativity, do, do you think AI will be composing film scores anytime soon? Have you seen any of that? Yeah. I am sure we will hear it. <laughs> Absolutely. But do I think, I'll start with the, the question that I probably answer the most because obviously with an orchestral scoring stage and um, having synth, available. It's like, why do people record with a real orchestra if you've got it all in the box? And funnily enough, the synth sounds, those that are in the box are actually the people that they pay to come in and re-record the notes. And you can hear it. Yeah. And there, there is something really special about getting 60 people into a room in a moment to bring to life and express, and I think that's the you know the key word, that human word, to express the intention on the page. And so, though there was this great tech there, we have always 
continued to record an orchestra and it is seen as the holy grail for composers to get into the studio and record with those real people. The thing is with AI is it's learning from us. It can only do what we've taught it to do. It's limited by our input. And so we've got to keep growing to obviously feed the AI. We, I've read AI scripts. They're interesting <laughs> and disconnected. Yeah. And I think we'll, we'll, you know, they'll obviously be, we're, we're human, we love to see what we can train the computers to do, program the computers to do. We will hear um, an AI score. But I think for me personally, art exists with, with us humans and, you know, music is an artistic endeavour and we should get the robots to do everything we don't want to do. Right. Not the things we actually <laughs> want to do. I think that was the intention, right? Let's get computers so they can do the stuff we don't like doing. Let's not give them the art. Let's keep the art to ourselves. It's like I said just before that I had a, you know, I've got a robot vacuum cleaner roaming the house uh, in moments ago. Yeah, that's perfect. Do that. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it. So, yes, we will see it. Will it become the norm? I don't think so, but I think also deep down, I, I hope not. And I think it'll take quite a long time to get the fluidity that a real player has. But I think you've also made a great point there where let's say, you know, let's say someone does crack the code on going, let's get an AI to compose a score and, you know, feed it everything John Williams ever did and now like give us the next Star Wars soundtrack, but they'll still be coming to you to record it even if that side of it happened to, you know, it, it might put the notes on the page, but it needs to be interpreted by a great player to actually make it sound wonderful. <laughs> I think, Absolutely. yeah, it, to, to get it close to what the old ones used to be, then I think, yeah, you need the real players and you need someone breaking it down, even though we do use a lot of computers and stuff for composition and for writing and things like that. It, I think you still need the real people. And that's the thing. The, the 60 players that we put in the room to record that piece of music today will be different to the output of the even the same 60 players tomorrow. And that's why we go to a concert hall and still watch the classics year on year We've heard them. We've heard them played. Actually, we've got albums of them recorded, but it is really special to feel that energy and get that sort of on that day interpretation. And we do that not just with our classical musicians, but our, you know, pop stars and rock bands as well. You'll go and see them a couple of times on tour because it's a little bit different um, and that's us humans are unpredictable and that's special. Last question, you play with the best equipment there is all day long. Do you have a fancy home audio set up yourselves or is that kind of lazy mode when you get home? Yeah, I kind of do. I have a 5.1 system at home. Not quite as fancy as what I would have at work, but... well. <laughs> Look, there are lots of controllers. <laughs> you need it's, a degree to run it. It does. Seven remotes. Yeah. Yeah. I call tech support as much at home as I do at the studio. That's <laughs> yeah. the truth. And Craig seems to make everything work at a press of a button. Or I go, I did this, this, and this. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's working now. How do you do that? Which is exactly the same thing that happens at work. 
I have a classic story of a you know, family friend who their computer kept breaking, but of course the tech guy would come and it would work fine every time. And so he got a photo of the tech guy and just sat it near his computer. And then it was like, that way it doesn't, doesn't break anymore. That's exactly. That's the threat. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. I go, as soon as I say I'm getting Craig, everything works again. Craig and Elaine Beckett, thank you so much for your time and super appreciate uh, fitting us in before, you know, another amazing recording this evening. So thank you so much. No Not problem. a problem.